0: That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500, 500 Man, that sunset is gorgeous.
1: Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you.
2: I could stay here forever.
1: Carvana. Good morning. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. Today is the 45th day in office for America's 45th president, and Donald Trump owes at least some of his success to his high-profile campaign manager and now White House aide Kellyanne Conway. Conway is rarely at a loss for words, as Nora O'Donnell will show us in our Sunday profile.
3: Kellyanne Conway was front and center in the fight to make Donald Trump president. But for her, the battle continues. I was surprised you have full Secret Service protection. Why? Have there been threats? Yes. This Sunday morning, in the West Wing and in her New Jersey home, a candid conversation with Kellyanne Conway.
1: What do you have, lumberjack? The United States could become a renovation nation if one big part of President Trump's agenda comes to pass. But how to pay for the massive cost of rebuilding our infrastructure? Chris Van Cleve this morning explores the options.
4: Before he was president, Donald Trump was known for building big things. Now many are wondering how he will pull off what's likely to be the biggest construction project in American history, fixing the nation's crumbling infrastructure. If you look at the magnitude
0: of the backlog of unrepaired bridges, unrepaired airports. The infrastructure needs of this country over the next decade are certainly measured in the
4: trillions. Paying the price for better infrastructure, later on Sunday morning.
1: For the record, few pop singers are enjoying the success Ed Sheeran is enjoying these days. Our Mark Phillips has tracked him down to his home turf, or rather, beach.
2: It's a journey that began on the rocky shores of England.
5: I get to eat fish and chips, and people call it work.
2: And it's taken him to the bright lights of Times Square.
5: Hey, now.
2: If you've ever had the radio on, you've probably heard his music.
4: Take me
0: into your
2: and he's about to conquer the world again.
4: I'm in love with the, shape
2: of you. the rise and rise of Ed Sheeran later on Sunday morning.
1: I'm in love with the- And to start things off this morning, we'll have a conversation with Melinda Gates, philanthropist and wife of Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates. Your name is carved in equal-sized letters in the front. Is it a partnership of equals? It's
6: absolutely a partnership of equals.
1: She's the lesser-known half of the world's richest couple, but now Melinda Gates is stepping into a more prominent role.
6: I finally realized that... Somebody needed to speak on behalf of the women I was meeting around the world. All Melinda Gates, on her own,
1: where Our man in Paris, David Turacamo, has a tip of the hat to the beret. Bobby Flay puts in a good word for cats. Steve Hartman meets a basketball star who's one of a kind. Or is he?
7: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
1: Melinda Gates is a name to be reckoned with in the world of philanthropy, just as the company started by her husband is a force to be reckoned with in the tech world. Reason enough to sit down with her and him for a Sunday morning conversation. They are the richest and among the world's most influential power couples. The foundation that bears their names has given away nearly $40 billion so far. Your name is carved in equal size letters in the front.
6: Is it a partnership of equals? It's absolutely a partnership of equals. <laughs> and it's important to both of us that the world understands that we are running this place together. This is our joint values being played out in the world.
1: The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is the largest private charity in the world. Its 500 million dollar headquarters was intended to make a statement as bold as its mission. Inside, they are literally trying to save the world. I've asked an employee or two if to work here you have to pass an optimism test. (laughs) Do ya? Well,
0: yes our work
8: the number of lives saved, I think just the exposure yeah. here would remind you that the plight of the poorest, as tough as it is, is improving,
6: and we get to be a, a, a big part of that. We are seeing progress, and I think that those points of progress are points of light that employees can point to and say, I was part of that. We did change the world. We are changing the world. All right, thank you. Okay. Bye. Namaste. Namaste. <laughs> According to the United Nations, since
1: 1990, global poverty has been cut in half. 122 million children's lives have been saved through immunization, better nutrition, and disease prevention, areas in which the Gates
6: Foundation has been a leading funder. What we've done as a world is we've done an incredible job of bringing down the number of deaths of children under the age of five. And that's because of basically vaccines getting out there finally and these malarial bed nets. This is the great thing about math and why data is so important. Not only does Bill like data, I'm a computer scientist. I like data because data tells us where to go and how to act. For example, one million One million children are the number of babies that die on the first day of life. Can you believe that? Still a million children die on the first day. So now we know we need to work on that piece of the problem. This number may astonish you. Last year, there were 37 cases of polio worldwide. It's the lowest number of cases we've ever had um, on the planet, and we think by next year we can drive that number to absolutely zero.
1: The Gates Foundation has a more modest domestic agenda focused on improving public schools. They've invested in charters and promoted education standards. But success has
6: been more elusive. This is a tough problem. I don't care how big your philanthropy is. is We can set up experiments and points of light and places where we can show what can be done. Ultimately, everything that we're doing takes government funding to, to lift it up and to fund it.
1: Raised in Dallas, Melinda French was valedictorian at a Catholic academy for girls in 1982. Five years later, she graduated from Duke University with degrees in computer science, economics, and a master's in business and a job offer from IBM when a little-known startup
6: caught her eye. I came out and interviewed with Microsoft and I just thought, oh, my gosh, I have to work at this company. They are changing the world. And if I get an offer, there's no way I'm not going to take it.
1: Speaking of offers,
6: you married the CEO. Wasn't play, That wasn't part of my life plan.
8: <laughs> well, I met her uh, at a New York City sales meeting. Mm-hmm. And then it was only a week or so after that that I uh, went up to her in the parking lot and uh, asked if she wanted to go out
1: a week. Were you ready for that?
6: Uh, no, <laughs> I wasn't. When we met and Bill was CEO of Microsoft and I was, you know, all of 23, he actually uh, that first date, asked me out for two weeks from Saturday night. And I said, two weeks from Saturday night, how could you possibly know what you're doing? My schedule doesn't go out that far. I thought, wow, wouldn't you know, she, she's already met the CEO and he <laughs>
1: likes her. Mary Lehman and Melinda have been best friends since high school. Did you imagine that she was going to marry him?
6: Uh, no, probably not then, but, uh, but I thought, you know, great for her. Mm-hmm. She got to see what it was really like, I mean, games and puzzles. We played water volleyball one night in right, his pool, just right. the three of us. What, what it impressed me the most when I met him was just how down-to-earth he was and how,
1: how fun. After a seven-year courtship, they married in 1994. The next year, Microsoft released Windows 95, revolutionizing the personal computer. And at 39 years old, Bill Gates was named the richest person in the world. The following year, pregnant with their first child, Melinda surprised Bill with news that she meant to be a stay at home mom. Am I right that Bill was
6: supportive, but maybe a little surprised himself? He was surprised. He was definitely surprised. But I said to him, you know, it just doesn't make sense. You can't be the CEO and go as hard as you're going and, and somebody has to be at home, right? I, we, we didn't want our children raised by somebody else. And I thought, I said, you know, if we want them to have the values we have, somebody has to be home. Their three children
1: grew up in this 66,000-square-foot mansion overlooking Lake Washington in suburban Seattle. Since creating the foundation in 2000, Bill and Melinda have traveled the world seeking out the places their money can do the most good.
8: From the Gates Foundation, Melinda
1: Gates. But Melinda shunned the spotlight until five years ago when she took on a cause of her own and discovered how harsh the spotlight can be.
6: When you think about family planning from the perspective of a woman It will change the way you think about family planning.
1: Once you became a a public figure, in fact, the first time you set foot on the public stage, I believe you discovered how controversial contraceptives can be as only a Catholic girl who got in trouble with the Vatican Mm. over it would know. You
6: got slapped down by the Vatican. It's okay, I'm I'm doing the right thing. There are 225 million women asking us for contraceptives. They're asking us, and I meet women who die because they don't have access to contraceptives. I meet women who beg me to take their children back to the United States. I had a woman say to me, take two of my children. I, I said, I'm so sorry, I can't. And she says, well, then take one. I mean, these are people living in extreme circumstances, and you can't turn your back on people like that. And so I grew up in the Catholic Church that has a social justice mission. In fact, they used to talk about the cries of the poor. I've heard the cries of the poor, and we need to give access to women to contraceptives.
1: What did Bill say? He admits that he thought women's issues, including contraceptives, were soft issues. Now it's like a priority. It's a huge priority. For him. Because he sees the data. What do the two of you separately bring that uh, strengthens your capacities?
6: Uh, We both go out
8: and try and see the people we serve, but uh, she does that
6: even better than I do, does even more of that than I do. When I come back from a field visit, the first person I want to talk to about on the phone or at home is Bill about it, and uh, both to tell them the stories of their lives, but then also for us to put our brains together and say, well, what else could we do? How could we make it better? Do we really know that what they're saying to us in the field, does that add up to the data that we're seeing or not?
1: Ultimately, the key to the Gates' legacy may be their philanthropy, which makes you wonder Would Bill Gates be having the most impactful second act since Andrew Carnegie
6: without Melinda? I I read this poem that I loved at my uh, high school graduation speech about what a successful life was to me. And it's to know that one life has breathed easier because you've lived, to me that's success.
1: Prepare to be mesmerized, next. And now a page from our Sunday Morning Almanac, March 5th, 1815, 202 years ago today. The day German-born Dr. Franz Anton Mesmer died at age 80. Mesmer believed he could harness a force he called animal magnetism to cure the sick. Relying largely on the power of suggestion, his controversial methods came to be called mesmerism, a forerunner of modern hypnotism.
2: You see before you the conductors of my
0: power. Don't be frightened if you swoon away. Don't resist.
1: Alan Rickman portrayed mesmer, as only he could, in the 1994 movie of that name. Just one of countless depictions of hypnotism in popular culture. Bela Lugosi portrayed hypnotism as the most horrifying of mythic dark arts in the 1931 film Dracula.
2: Come here.
1: While the 1962 Cold War thriller The Manchurian Candidate credited hypnotism with near irresistible powers at communism's beck and call.
4: I am sure you've all heard the old wives' tale, but no hypnotized subject may be forced to do that which is repellent to his moral nature, whatever that may be. Nonsense, of course.
8: I think I can help you with hypnosis.
1: Hypnosis. By contrast, Don Wells and Russell Johnson played hypnotism strictly for laughs in the 1960s TV series, Gilligan's Island.
0: When I snap my fingers, you will become wide awake.
1: You were going to eat regularly. Entertainment value aside, hypnotism's modern day medical practitioners employ it to help patients do everything from stopping smoking to losing weight. We can drive in. As Dr. Svetlana Kogan recently explained to our New York station,
6: WCBS. The purpose of hypnosis is to address these deeply seated conflicts between the subconscious and the conscious. So that we can get to the root of the problem. Serious therapy
1: or parlor trick? Popular views on hypnotism's value remain divided to this day, not unlike the way they were in the times of Dr. Franz Anton Mesmer. Heads up we look at the making of the French beret. Next. AN AGE-OLD STAPLE OF FRENCH FASHION IS SUDDENLY NEW AGAIN. HERE'S DAVID Turacamo, OUR MAN IN PARIS. IN THE
8: SOUTH OF FRANCE IS A SMALL MUSEUM DEDICATED TO A HAT, THE BERET, OR BERET. YOU KNOW, THAT FRENCH HAT YOU ALWAYS SEE ARTISTS AND, WELL, FRENCH PEOPLE IN GENERAL (laughs)
7: WEARING.
8: The French beret originated in the Pyrenees Mountains about 400 years ago and making one today draws on the same techniques that have been used for centuries. And yet it's never gone out of style. It's the must-have accessory of this season, according to Lord & Taylor's fashion director, Stephanie Solomon.
1: It is the biggest trend we've seen in a long time in
2: terms of accessories.
8: A hundred years ago they were made on machines like this. Today, the machines are faster, but almost as antiquated. In fact, this one's almost 50
4: years old. And they're the ones that replaced this. So prior to that, our factory actually had machines like this. Exactly the same.
8: Mark Sanders is the sales and marketing director for Lolaire, the oldest traditional beret manufacturer in the world. They're the last manufacturer in France to make berets the way they
4: do. In our heyday, we employed up to 350 people, and the factory worked 24 hours a day,
0: seven days a week.
8: Well, Marcus and is part of the new management team who took over about four years ago, after the former owners filed for bankruptcy. But rather than let it close, the employees fought to keep the plan alive.
0: They spent their own money.
4: They went and bought wool, brought it back here in their own cars, and they started making berets. It was very important for them not to let the machines stop.
8: But the machines are just hardware because the real work is done by hand.
3: And though
8: they'll produce about a quarter of a million berets in a year, it's a two-day process just to finish one. Merino wool is knitted to produce this. Looks like a large pizza before it's cooked. See there? Then it goes through a process called felting that shrinks the wool and makes it soft and thick.
0: Wool is a living material
4: and never the same. So we can put 400 berets in the machine at a time, but the time it takes to achieve the felting will change from batch to batch. So it has to be checked every 15 minutes, like a chef will do in in a kitchen.
8: It's then dyed, stretched, and steamed to give it color, size, and form. Now, you see this machine? The drum is covered with abrasive metal brushes.
4: This machine here will actually scratch the, the wool to make the fibers stand up.
8: Once they stand up, they can be sheared on this machine to make the fabric smooth.
0: It really hurts our employees to know that French berries have been made in China or have been made in India and worst of all, sold in Paris. They're making sure that this aromatic product stays alive, stays French. Alive and just as
8: French as Brigitte Bardot. This is what we do weekly here.
1: Still to come, On the Beach with pop star Ed Sheeran. Good, isn't it? And later, Nora O'Donnell talks to White House counselor Kellyanne Conway.
7: I can't let the haters get to me or to the president. What he's doing here is so big.
1: Welcome to Play It, a
7: new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports,
1: tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. I know
8: you've been sworn, sir, I have read your complaint.
1: It happened this past week, the death of TV judge Joseph Wapner. A retired Los Angeles judge, Wapner dispensed justice from the bench of the People's Court from 1981 to 1993.
8: The so judgment for the plaintiff, $250 against the defendant cab driver.
4: Now, you want to get in there and see the show, huh? In the
1: 1988 film Rain Man, Dustin Hoffman played an autistic man so fixated on the show that his brother, played by Tom Cruise, has to ask a perfect stranger to let him into her house to watch. If he doesn't get to watch
4: people's court in about 30 seconds, he's going to throw a fit right here in your porch. And You can help me, or you can stand there and watch it happen.
1: Talk about must-see TV.
2: We'll be back for the-
1: Joseph Wapner was 97. Coming up, infrastructure. Full speed ahead. From President Trump on down, everyone seems to agree that America needs to become a renovation nation. But as Chris Van Cleve tells us, politically, the road to repairing our infrastructure may be as bumpy and potholed as the actual roads themselves. The time has come
4: for a new program of national rebuilding. In his speech to a joint session of Congress this past week, President Donald Trump made clear he intends to make good on one of his signature campaign promises.
0: Our roads, our bridges,
8: our tunnels, our highways, our airports, schools, hospitals we will
5: rebuild everything.
4: Rebuilding the nation's infrastructure was a key element of Mr. Trump's plan to make America great again. And anxious experts who have been watching it crumble for years are hopeful this time, the issue might finally get the attention it deserves. I think we've just been in a mass collective state of denial about how important these systems are, um, what it takes to keep them, you know, up to snuff. Casey Dinges is with the American Society of Civil Engineers. Later this week, they will release their highly anticipated infrastructure report card. Last time, they gave the nation a D+. Road conditions... Cause the average American to spend another $500 a year on car repairs. By the year 2020, if we don't start making proper investments, personal family income will fall by $3,000. And so Boulder Dam stands today, a modern colossus. The United States used to have the best infrastructure in the world. But those days are long gone. If these investments aren't made, doesn't the risk of failure of these types of aging infrastructure go up
5: it'll be a more dangerous infrastructure that we're relying on so
4: we're certainly putting ourselves at greater risk from a safety perspective absolutely virtually everyone agrees we need to fix the nation's aging infrastructure but there's a fierce debate underway about how we should pay for it by raising taxes turning to private investment or simply borrowing more money i think there's no danger that we're going to spend too much larry summers served as treasury secretary under bill clinton and was an economic advisor to President Obama. He is one of a growing number of economists who say the money to pay for an increase in infrastructure spending should be borrowed.
0: A moment of unprecedentedly low interest rates should be a moment of unprecedentedly high investment. And it's a tragic irony that it's a moment of unprecedentedly low investment.
4: Why is that? Why aren't cities, uh, states, and the federal government going, we should act now?
0: Some of it is general distrust of government. Some of it is frustration with uh, the difficulties in getting infrastructure projects done quickly. Some of it is just a generalized gridlock that seems to infect uh, our politics. Help us rebuild America. Help us put construction workers back to work. Republicans in
4: Congress consistently opposed increasing infrastructure spending under President Obama. After years of Tea Party protests, few seem eager to take on more debt in order to do so now. Tuesday night, the president hinted his plan will not ask taxpayers to foot the entire bill. I
8: will be asking Congress to approve legislation that produces a $1 trillion investment in infrastructure of the United States, financed through both public and private capital, creating millions of new jobs.
4: The White House is yet to release an infrastructure plan. But last fall, Mr. Trump's campaign suggested offering billions in tax credits to private investors willing to finance public infrastructure projects. Known as public-private partnerships, they are essentially business deals. The project has to generate revenue for the private investors. There are literally trillions of dollars available around the globe for infrastructure projects. Doug Peterson co-chairs the Infrastructure Task Force for the Bipartisan Policy Center. Are there projects that lend themselves to this kind of arrangement? Uh, Toll roads would be one example that a a
0: company might completely purchase and run a transportation system of roads getting paid through the tolls.
4: Like the tolls collected on these express lanes outside Washington, D.C. When Virginia wanted to build them, it was private investors who helped pick up the tab. This project wouldn't have gotten done without a public-private partnership. There wasn't no, th- money. Th- this, there was no money for this project. But for-profit infrastructure can mean more than just toll roads. If I took you
8: in blindfold and you took to the LaGuardia Airport in New York, you must
4: think I must be in some third-world country. The long-awaited $4 billion makeover at New York's much reviled LaGuardia Airport is a public-private partnership. But privatizing infrastructure can be expensive sometimes very expensive in southern virginia the tolls to cross this privately financed tunnel started small but have risen to as much as eleven dollars forcing virginia taxpayers to subsidize some low-income drivers this toll road in denver didn't cost taxpayers a dime but cost drivers as much as eighteen dollars one way in chicago the cost of parking has more than doubled since the city leased its meters to private investors in 2008. Before the 75-year lease is up, the deal will cost the city's furious residents millions. And how do we attract investors to infrastructure projects unlikely to make a profit? We probably won't.
8: Every day I say a little prayer before I come in this building,
0: actually.
4: Jim Bogenreef runs the 79-year-old water treatment plant in Breckenridge, Minnesota. The city of 3,300 is proud of its safe, clean water, but the plant is long past its prime.
8: This one is the one that worries me the most. See what I'm talking about, the rust? Ooh.
4: Some pipes still in use date back to the 1930s. A public works package that included money to replace the plant was defeated in the state legislature last year.
8: If this were to fail, blow a hole, we would not have any water at all. It literally scares me. Oh, I think I'm going to church (laughs) right now. I think.
4: Here's the irony even though politicians can't agree, infrastructure spending is popular. A recent poll found 89% favored increasing federal infrastructure spending. Many experts believe the best way to fund transportation infrastructure would be to boost the federal gasoline tax. It hasn't been raised since 1993. We did not have enough funding to maintain the roads and the bridges that we currently had. Georgia Governor Nathan Deal couldn't do anything about gridlock in Washington, but he was determined to do something about gridlock in Atlanta. In 2015, in a move that angered anti-tax conservatives, Deal and his fellow Republicans in the state legislature agreed on a 10-year, $10 billion transportation bill raising the gas tax by six cents a gallon for the average driver. Nineteen states and the District of Columbia have increased their gas tax since 2013. I mean, is it a situation where people are willing to pay for things like roads and it's the politics that sometimes gets in the way of that? (laughs) I think that's always a factor. I think we sometimes underestimate the enthusiasm that our public has for making sure that they don't have to sit in traffic. I think that's the frustration that many taxpayers and many uh, drivers have all across the country is they don't see anybody doing anything except talking about something. I thought it was time we did something about it. No matter how it's paid for, raising taxes, private investment or borrowing, most agree the time to act is now. If not, the nation's crumbling infrastructure is likely something we all will be dealing with for a very, very long time. Next, It
2: feels like I died and then, you know, got a a reincarnation.
1: One of a kind? Is a certain college basketball star simply one of a kind or a possible inspiration for many more like him? Steve Hartman traveled to Indiana to find
2: out. Sophomore Caleb Swanigan, number 50 for the Purdue Boilermakers, may be the most talented college basketball player in the country but he is also the most unlikely it feels like i just had two lives really it feels like for lack of better words it feels like i died and then you know got a, a reincarnation this is the new caleb Swanigan, and this was the old that's him in the yellow over 360 pounds in eighth grade the only thing this kid could dunk was a cookie but what makes his success most implausible is that for the majority of his childhood, Caleb was homeless. His mom used to drag him from shelter to shelter here in Indianapolis and across the country until 2011 when she gave up her parental rights. He had a little blue shirt, a tie and some khaki pants and had a little duffel bag under his arm. That's all the possessions he had. Yeah. Roosevelt Barnes adopted Caleb. At the time, Roosevelt was recently divorced and his other kids were grown and gone. And it allowed me to have somebody in the house that I can love again, really. Love and encourage. Rebound, rebound! Roosevelt says you have to encourage. Which is why, when that 360-pound eighth grader said he wanted to play basketball of all sports, Roosevelt didn't try to lower Caleb's expectations. He raised them. When he couldn't jump over a piece of paper, I was telling him, you're great, you're the best power forward in the world. So were you lying to him? No, I wasn't. I was speaking faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And Caleb believed. I guess he saw something in me that I didn't see myself at that point. It helped that Roosevelt knew a little something about sports. He played pro football in Detroit and he now works as a sports agent. So he laid out a program for Caleb that included getting in shape and getting mostly A's in school. As a result, last week... Caleb Swanigan was named an academic All-American, one of the top basketball players in the country with a 3.3 GPA to boot. Is this kid one of a kind, or is he just one of many kids on our streets and in our foster system who simply need someone to believe?
3: Still to come, Kellyanne Conway Her
1: turn. And meet Nacho, Bobby Flay's delectable cat.
7: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
3: It's
6: Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Jane Pauley.
1: Kellyanne Conway played a crucial role in Donald Trump's election to the presidency. Now she has a high-profile job in his White House, with the occasional day off. Nora O'Donnell of CBS This Morning
3: has our Sunday profile. Last Sunday, Kellyanne Conway wasn't defending her boss, President Donald J. Trump, on TV. She was at church, attending mass with her husband, attorney George T. Conway, and their four children, along with some friends. Breakfast at a diner came next. Oh,
7: Charlotte, what do you have, your lumberjack? Oh, no.
3: Followed by some quality family time at their northern New Jersey home. A brief return to what life used to be like. But these days, her Sunday routine is far from normal. I was surprised, you have full secret service protection. Why? Have there been threats? Yes. I have
7: 24-7 Secret Service protection and... Most White House staffers do not? Do not. I find that to be very unfortunate. And obviously, if they didn't need to be there, they wouldn't be.
3: But they do need to be there. The unusual round-the-clock protection was granted to guard President Trump's high-profile, highly controversial White House counselor. You were gonna stay on the outside and make a lot of of money. Why did you go inside the White House? It's a
7: great question, Nora. Every time I see people say she sold her soul and thinking, wow, I was making in one and a half speeches, one and a half speeches, so a couple hours out of my life what I will make this year in the White House as counselor to the president. There is no den she will not go
3: into. Of course, before she counseled President Trump, the 50-year-old attorney and businesswoman who founded her own polling company became the first woman to manage and win a presidential race. Trump, Trump. And it's because she's a woman, says Conway, that she finds herself a constant target. Take wearing that revolutionary-style coat at the inauguration. She responded to critics by saying... Sorry to offend the black stretch pants women of America with a little color. Let's agree that it was silly to focus on, on your outfit. That's fine. But, okay, who, but are the black, who are the black stretch pants women? Well,
7: but the, the fact is that uh, we are... I, I, very... I'm actually
3: honestly asking because oh. I don't know oh, what the well, answer is.
7: Goodness. I mean, walk through an airport, um, look at a lot of America today. They don't wear anything that snaps buttons or zippers. And that's okay. That's their business. But why criticize what I wear?
3: Fast forward to this past Monday, when she was photographed kneeling on a couch in the Oval Office. We're constantly going back to where
7: I sat, the presumptive negativity of what I wore or what I said. And I do think it's a triple standard. I hate to tell you. And what does that mean, a triple standard? Well, people talk about the double standard Mm -hmm. of what a woman wears, not what she said, or uh, what she was doing X, Y, and Z. The triple standard is is that conservative women are held to, you know, are, are just cast aside many times by traditional feminist outlets and individuals who control a great deal of the media. I mean, I can't let the haters
3: get to me or to the president. What he's doing here is so big. Then again, for some, it's not what she's wearing or doing. It's about what she has said.
7: I bet bet it's brand new information to people that President Obama had a six-month ban on the Iraqi refugee program after two Iraqis came here to this country, Mm. were radicalized, and they were the masterminds behind the Bowling Green massacre.
3: As is now well-known, there was never a Bowling Green massacre. She called it an honest mistake. But there was also this remark about the size of the crowd on inauguration day. You're saying it's a
7: falsehood, and they're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. But the point remains: alternative facts.
2: Alternative facts. Four of the five facts he uttered. The one thing he got right was Zeke Miller. Four of the five facts he uttered were just not
0: true. Look, alternative facts are not facts; they're falsehoods.
2: Did you
3: take a credibility hit? because of what happened with the Bowling Green massacre and what happened when you talked about alternative facts? Did that hurt your credibility?
7: Well, I think the question presumes that it did. And so now you've got that out in the ether and the one or two- Actually, you can say no. Well- I didn't presume anything. What, no, what, what people should do, what I've always done with others, is look at the measure of someone's career. I've been a pollster for two decades plus. And I've worked very hard to speak candidly and truthfully. What are there, alternative facts? Well, it was alternative information and additional facts. And that got conflated. But, you know, respectfully, Nora, I see mistakes on TV every single day. And people just brush them off. Everybody thinks it's just so funny that the wrong, the wrong movie was, you know, uh, heralded as the winner of the Oscars. You say, oh, well, that's just all in good fun. Things happen. Well, things happen to everyone.
3: Conway has also taken flack for promoting Ivanka Trump's fashion line while in the I White House. I
7: fully, I'm going to just give it, I'm going to give a free okay. commercial here. Go buy it today, everybody. You can find it
3: online. White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer would later say...
6: She's been counseled on, on, on that subject and, um, and that's,
4: that's it.
3: Then this past week, the White House said Conway acted, quote, without nefarious motive or intent. Did you feel bad, bad about what happened? I always feel badly because I'm, a, you know,
7: a Catholic guilt, mother guilt, maternal guilt, counselor guilt. Mm-hmm. It's all there, of course. Um, of course I felt badly mm-hmm. about what happened because I am here to
3: serve the president who's here to serve the people. And she does it from one of the most coveted offices in the West Wing, once occupied by Valerie Jarrett, Carl Rove, and former first lady, Hillary Clinton. You still got the jacket?
7: Yes, the jacket is there. Uh, it, it may go into the uh, well, my own private museum one day, along with <laughs> the screenshot of my cell phone 2.30 a.m. on election night from Uma Abedin, who is calling on behalf of Secretary Clinton to call and concede to and congratulate Donald Trump on his victory.
3: We visited her last Wednesday. The morning after President Trump's address to Congress. I am here tonight
8: to deliver a message of unity and strength.
3: One that seemed to mark a departure. These, these people are stupid. From the fiery stump style Americans have grown accustomed to. Was the president's speech a reset button? No,
7: I think the reset button is way overdone. I mean, this is a progression. The man has been on the job
3: for five weeks. I feel It people- was called a presidential speech. And he's been president for five weeks. What went into this speech that changed the way he's communicating?
7: Well, first of all, I was part of the process. uh, Others did the bulk of the work. But I will tell you that it is President Trump who was writing and rewriting entire passages. I mean, he really wanted it to be in his voice. And he works with predominantly um, brilliant speechwriter Stephen Miller, who is able to really reflect the president's tone and content. And then I think you heard uh, much of Ivanka Trump's voice in that speech.
3: Conway says her job includes press and communications, but she also views herself as a conduit, a person who delivers advice and data to the president. What time do you get in in the morning?
7: Um, I get here around 7.30. And what time do you leave? Um, it varies. Not early. I mean, it really varies. Usually not before 8 nine. And, but I have a very um, hermit-like existence here, and part of it is because of the Secret Service detail, part of it is because if I want to go out with a friend for dinner, it's photographed and it's talked about, and it's what did she what did she do, what was she wearing, and it's kind of weird. I mean, I'm not a celebrity, I'm just a pollster who happened to become a campaign manager, and I've been trying to keep a much lower profile here.
3: Which is why, she tells us, we're seeing less of her these days. She says she's trying to cut back on screen time. People should not look at me as
7: somebody who, quote, goes on TV. That was 5% of what I did. This idea, somebody once wrote wrote a very flattering article and said, oh, but you know, they had to put one negative thing in there, I guess. You know, um, maybe she's not that involved in everything because she's on TV. It's like, no, I'm on TV when they're all still sleeping or watching me from bed. Mm -hmm. I'm already there. Been up for two hours doing that. Oh, and I'm there late at night.
3: That may be just as well, because late night hasn't been kind to Conway. Not long ago, Saturday Night Live depicted her as a stalker. I'm not going to be ignored.
0: <laughs> you get it, Kellyanne, you made up a massacre. We can't have you on.
3: But
7: I missed the news.
3: Okay.
7: Oh, <laughs> uh, look, people really got outraged about that particular skit. I had people right, left, and center coming to my quote, defense, mm-hmm. saying it was over the top and it's also, but it's also untrue.
3: So who is Kellyanne Conway? She was raised in a blue-collar New Jersey town. Her parents divorced when she was young. I grew up in a
7: house of all women. My mother, her mother, and two of my mother's unmarried sisters raised me. So these four Italian Catholic women raised me in this house. Mm -hmm. And that has benefited me tremendously because there's a certain humility that will never go away.
3: And while President Trump uses social media as an important tool to communicate, and sometimes attack, Conway tells us she considers it a cesspool, in part because of what her children see on it.
7: Because it hurts my kids more than yeah. anything. They all read. They're all online reading. And what do they say? What do your kids say? Mom, why would people say X about you or Y about you or Z about you? I say, well, that's their unconsidered opinion. They don't want Donald Trump to be president. They don't want me to be there with him. They don't want any of us to be there. I mean, we're all criticized, and they try to pit us against each other, which is completely ridiculous. But I tell them, say a prayer for those people, because something's got to really bother you, that you feel so bent on criticizing someone you hardly know Mm -hmm. for doing a job that you can't begin to understand.
3: Her husband, George Conway, who may also join the Trump administration as the nation's next solicitor general, is much more camera shy. And what do you think of watching Kellyanne through this whole thing?
0: Oh, and she's a fighter. She's tough. Um, I you know, don't like everything that's been said about her, to be sure, and it makes me a little angry. You know, it's part of the fact that she's there, out there for the president, and they're going to attack her. They're going to attack whoever they, you know, whoever they see standing up for the president.
3: You talk so passionately about public service and the role that, that, that you're crafting in the White House. I mean, that naturally evolves in something wanting to run yourself for office.
7: But I feel like I'm in a really good place, Nora, as counselor to the president to have the type of impact that usually motivates people to run for office. It's not just the fire in your belly anymore. You have to have the bile in your throat. And this is why I think many women do not run for office. Many good men and women who would bile Bile in your throat. Yeah, just to swallow so much that the country looks at you through this negative lens and corruption and cronyism and you're lying and you're you want money and you're motivated by power and, and capital and, and, you know, the, the, the money that can come to you, the wealth that can come to you. And it's just, there are really good men and women out there who truly want to serve. I've worked with them in my polling business for decades. And some of them make it and some,
3: most do not. For now, the Conways will soon be packing up and heading to Washington, although not everyone is thrilled about it. Which is what, to not let mommy move to Washington? Yeah, to
7: not let any of uh, our family move. To Washington. No, no, go Either. sign the petition. Stop the comments. No, is my way of Get Hashtag stop She's gonna move. live with me. Over here, no, we were talking about that.
3: Respected by some, denounced by others, Conway says there's only one thing that could make her rethink her future alongside the man she helped make president. Is there anything that would cause you to want to leave? the White House. Yes, my children, they're having the hardest
7: time with this. Mm -hmm. This is all new for us. This is not something I've sought. I'm not a, a famous person on TV. It's just different to not have mom there. But it was a decision we made as a family, and we're going to move them here either way because I'm here to support the president.
1: Loft the Cat joins us now. In solidarity with those of you who have been asking for equal time following Connor Knighton's recent report about those adorable sled dog poppies. Felines have fans, too. I'm
5: one, and so is friend of the family, Bobby Flay. From the time I was born, there were always cats in my house. My mom was, and still is, obsessed with them. As an only child, they were as close to my brothers as I had. I spent countless hours side by side with them and we kept each other company. My mother was very creative when it came to naming them. Yes, I'm being sarcastic. There was Marshmallow with his single white paw, Smokey, Misty, and Coco who had beautiful brown points to their coats, and my very favorite, Pumpkin. You guessed it, he was an orange tabby. I wanted him because he matched my hair, and as a five-year-old boy, nothing could be cooler in my mind. Finally, a sibling. Until I moved out of my mom's house at 19, these felines were part of my every day and night. I missed them when I was away and I cherished the moment of opening the front door when they would all gather to welcome me home. As an adult, I had a 30-year drought without a cat in my home life. It was easy for me to make the excuse that I was never home. But what I was really nervous about was handling the responsibility of taking care of a new kitten and making a 15-20 to year commitment to a living, breathing creature. Well, I'm back in. If you have an Instagram account, there's a chance you've met my current feline companion, Nacho, or as he's known in social circles, Nacho Flay. Nacho is a Maine Coon, a breed known mostly for their exceptional size. They are known as the gentle giants of domestic cats. At just two years old, Nacho is approaching close to 20 pounds, and my guess is he'll probably eclipse that. (laughs) Here's the thing. I've been disputing the aloof and uncaring reputations cats have versus my dog-owning friends for decades. But Maine Coons, especially this one, have so many canine traits. Nacho plays fetch. He opens every door in my house. He follows me from room to room and is never out of earshot. And neither am I. He travels with me almost everywhere I go, and most importantly, shows me his love and affection constantly. And here's the best part. It's unconditional. Well, almost. He is food-motivated. I often wonder if I wasted three decades without a cat roaming my home, especially when I look into Nacho's eyes and I can almost hear his thoughts. He knows when I'm feeling a little under the weather, or I'm having a case of the blues. He makes me a softer and more understanding person just by his presence and affection. You know, the world has a way of giving you what you need. And sometimes a new best friend shows up when you need him the most.
1: I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us here again next Sunday morning.